Hello and welcome to the Marl End Institute podcast, which is coming to you from Queen Mary University of London. I'm Carl Pike, lecturer in British politics and public policy at Queen Mary. And in today's episode, we'll be asking the question, is Brexit done? In perhaps a broader sense of the question than the Prime Minister sometimes suggests. Our first guest is Anand Menon. He's Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London and the Director of the UK in a Changing Europe initiative, which has done a great deal of work in recent years, bringing facts and social scientific research to the Brexit debate to academic and non-academic audiences. Anand makes regular appearances in the UK media, including on the Today programme, and question time. Our second guest is Eunice Goish, who's Professor of Politics at Richmond University and a visiting research fellow at the Portuguese Institute of International Relations. Her areas of expertise are British party politics and Britain's relationship with Europe and European politics. She's currently conducting research on European Social Democratic Party's approach to the European Union. So in terms of what we'll be covering today, is Brexit done? We'll be thinking at, uh, about that from the perspective of the Prime Minister and the Conservative government. What does keep Brexit done mean for the Prime Minister? What does success look like over the next four years? And what role will the UK-EU relationship play in the government's policy and political strategy going forward? We'll also be thinking about the other political parties. So from an opposition perspective, what strategy is Keir Starmer following? in ruling out any discussion, for now, of significant changes to the UK-EU relationship? And how much control does Keir Starmer have in moving on from Brexit? We'll also think about the relationship between Brexit and the Union, and the future of Scotland, and the Scottish National Party's response to Brexit in the coming years. Is Brexit really done in Scottish politics? If I could start, Anand, with, with you, I mean, what, what do you think the Prime Minister envisages in terms of the government and Brexit strategy over the next 12 months or two years? Uh, simply put, I think he envisages talking about it as little as possible, trying to put all successes he might have in the future down to Brexit and blaming things that look like they're not going too badly on the pandemic. And how much control do you think he has over that kind of strategy? He has a degree of control. Uh, obviously, the unexpected might happen. Uh, we don't know, for instance, whether in the event that we see this promised review of workers' rights, the EU will retaliate under the treaty, in which case it'll be the EU setting the agenda. The one caveat I should add, actually, to what I, what I opened up saying, I suppose, is this is the one reason why occasionally the Prime Minister might like to put Brexit back on the agenda, as they've done with this uh, fight over the EU ambassador, is... At the election last year, what the Conservatives did was basically assemble a Leave coalition. I think 80-odd 80, 80 percent of those who voted Conservatives supported Leave. And it is those values issues that unites that coalition. And if the Conservatives want to maintain that coalition through to the next election, they're going to have to keep touching on these issues. And in that sense, it might be that the five-yearly review of the treaty is actually a good thing for the Prime Minister and might help him put the Labour Party on the back foot. Do you think, as the Conservatives approach the next general election, obviously there's a lot we don't know and a lot will happen between now and then, but do you think the Prime Minister will be wanting to talk about that phrase he used in the Commons quite recently, keep Brexit done? Is that going to be key to his political strategy at the next election too? I would have thought so, yes. If only 
in the sense that he might want to say, let's keep Brexit done by sticking to the deal we've got and not trusting the party over the other way, who we all know want a closer relationship with the EU that will subject us to their laws. So there are ways of finessing it. But I would just emphasise the point you made about uncertainty, because, of course, you know, as we start to emerge out of the COVID public health crisis, we're going to emerge into the COVID economic crisis. Uh, with unemployment quite probably at levels we've not seen since the 1980s. And it's just it's important, I think, you can't overstate the degree to which that will dominate the political agenda. And ultimately, it's what happens around that that is going to shape where we're at when we approach the election in four years' time. Eunice, building on what Anand was saying there about, obviously, you know, things that will happen and things that the Prime Minister can and cannot control, I mean, obviously, there have been consequences to the deal agreed between Britain and the European Union already. Um, and, you know, I can think of, for instance, the the protest involving fishermen and the fish industry in Whitehall, whether or not these are teething problems or whether or not they are, you know, designed in to the agreement, so to speak. Do you think those are going to have much of an effect on British politics and the Prime Minister right now? I think right now they won't have because at the moment they are quite uh, piecemeal, the kind of small sections of the British economy. We're seeing uh, small and medium-sized companies uh, who export into the EU facing problems. But these are kind of very punctual problems uh, that are not getting a lot of traction and attention in the media. So it's essentially discussed in the specialised media, but it's not something that is yet discussed by the entire population. I think because at the moment the country is still up at a standstill because of the pandemic, it's only when people will start to travel, uh, the tourism industry will, will restart, businesses will reopen, that the effects will become more visible. But even then, uh, I think he's going to be supported by the fact that the agenda setting media is uh, eurosceptic, has supported the get back control agenda and get Brexit done agenda agenda uh, from the very start. So he's going to continue to rely on that. What possibly uh, the, the problems that he will face is his inability to throw money at Brexit problems. So we've seen, for instance, 60 million given to Nissan as a way of saving the, the car industry, another close to 30 billion to the fishing uh, industry, so the export uh, uh, seafood uh, industry. But he won't be able to do this to all sectors of the economy, especially because the size of the deficit at the moment is uh, quite large. And more importantly, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, is very mindful, very concerned already with uh, the, the health of public finances. So he has a very limited scope to uh, continue to throw money uh, at uh, the teething problems of Brexit. And some of them are not as teething problems. They are going to be structural problems unless they are not going to be resolved. So I agree with Anand. It's the, he's, there's, he's going to pursue an agenda of being quiet, keeping Europe out of the headlines. And I think he's also going to be helped by the Labour Party. The Labour leader, Keir Starmer, has no interest whatsoever in uh, making the EU a big headline. His strategy has been also one of keeping quiet about Europe. So this will, will help him, uh, but for how long uh, remains to be seen. If there is a continuation of some of the stories we've seen in recent weeks, and indeed if we get to a, a post-crisis situation where the news uh, covers different things and there there is an interest in different things too, do you think it's the right 
call for the leader of the opposition to look away from economic problems and issues that are causing, you know, that are to the detriment of British businesses. Do you think it's the right call for the leader of the opposition to ignore it? He's not really ignoring it. I think what he's doing is actually quite clever. He's addressing each of these problems in a peaceful manner. For instance, we've seen that with this week or in the last days with uh, the uh, announced review of labor legislation. And we had uh, the shadow business secretary, Admiral Liban, going to parliament and defending the 48-hour week and essentially opposing any changes to labor law. Interestingly, he did not mention the word Europe, EU directive, nothing of the sort. So uh, I think what Labour is going to do is to address every Brexit problem that will emerge, will address them uh, as if they are isolated, will not mention Europe, and will discuss it, as they are now, rightly so, uh, national problems, so problems created by the government. This will work uh, for a while. And I think given that he has no agency in terms of shaping the future relationship with the European Union, the ongoing negotiations that are taking place at the moment, for instance, to uh, have a deal on the financial services industry, or even the review. Uh, So Keir Starmer has an interest in keeping quiet uh, about controversial issues, and uh, the strategy may pay off in the end. Since Starmer became leader of the Labour Party, his his approach has been very much wanting to talk about other things, which makes sense for all sorts of reasons, I'm sure. I mean, I think one of the interesting changes, obviously quite recently, was on the um, Andrew Marr programme. Keir Starmer was asked about his commitment to retain freedom of movement, which he had made during the Labour leadership election, and you know hadn't really spoken about since. And he very quickly said that that wasn't going to happen. Uh, He didn't appear particularly conflicted about it. From a a Labour Party perspective, do you think Keir Starmer will be under any great pressure over the next three or four years to talk about Europe? Or do you think people think, look, the guy has to be pragmatic, we all need to move on? I think there will be pressure on him to speak about Europe, and that pressure will come from several sources. Firstly, as I said before, it'll come from the fact that Europe will keep popping back into the headlines just because of the structure of the deal we've signed, the periodic renegotiations, uh, the fact that there might be infringement proceedings, all those sorts of things will bring Europe back into the headlines and the leader of the opposition will be, will be expected to have a position. Secondly, I think because there are members of his own parliamentary party who are deeply unhappy with the position that he has taken on the EU issue. I remember about two or three weeks ago being on a podcast with a Labour MP who was saying, we're going to start thinking about when we, when we restart the campaign to rejoin the European Union. And if you know, a lot will hinge on how many of those people there are and how much trouble they're willing to cause the leader to get him to talk about the EU. And the final thing, I think, is by the time we get to near the next election, Most economic analyses suggest that we will be coming out of the worst of the COVID economic crisis significantly before the next election. At that point, if the UK economy isn't bouncing back as quickly as others or as we might have expected, Labour are going to have to try and link those outcomes to the deal that the Prime Minister has signed. I don't see any other way in which you link economic outcomes to prime ministerial policy other than saying, you know what, he could have got us a, a, a different sort of Brexit deal that would have been less damaging and as a result of which we would be rebounding quicker. It's the logic of the third point that, that the Labour Party ends up in a place of wanting, if not 
a off-the-shelf single market deal than something quite close to it. I think the trick of a good opposition party is to say what the government has done run, wrong without necessarily spelling out a detailed alternative. I mean, that will be the trick for Starmer, because obviously the moment he starts coming out with specific alternatives, you're going to run into the wall of free movement or big rule taker or all sorts of things like that. The fact is, there isn't a very comfortable position for us to be in in relation to the European Union in between where we are now, which is economically damaging, but we're not a rule taker, and membership. Anything else involves the sorts of trade-offs that electorally are going to be hard to sell. So I think the trick is to maybe bundle the criticism of the Prime Minister's handling of Brexit into the broader critique that Keir Starmer is currently sort of drafting over competence and do it in that kind of way rather than making it a debate specifically about if we were in charge, this is the kind of relationship with the EU we would have. Yes, I agree. I think that is the, the, the strategy. And especially because Starmer is particularly interested in keeping quiet on freedom of movement, uh, immigration. He's currently obsessed with the, the, the voters of the Red Wall, so the mythical uh, Red Wall, uh, the 42 seats lost uh, uh, in England. And he, th- these were voters uh, that on a majority voted to leave the European Union. And the party is still very traumatized. So I think he's taking the kind of the long view, waiting for things to, to go wrong. You will only intervene and come up with reactions when he needs to. And he's going to let things unfold and eventually will come out with a, with a position. Eventually, another scenario, and I, maybe Anand can tell us something about this, what is the possibility of Brexit or the relationship of the United Kingdom with the European Union? ending up in a very similar place to the one of Switzerland with the EU. So we'll have a kind of a softening of uh, Brexit by a thousand tweaks. If that this really happens, Britain can find itself in a position where it has a, a very close relationship with the single market without being in the single market and, with, and crucially, without calling it membership of the single market. I think this takes us back to Anand's couple of points, though, about the sorts of pressures that are going to be on Keir Starmer. I mean, if we think of Boris Johnson, I mean, it's clearly, you know, or indeed another leader of the Conservative Party, it's going to clearly be in the Conservatives' interests to, to poke and prod Keir Starmer and other front benchers relentlessly if they're trying to walk this tightrope between exposing the government for all, all manner of problems connected to Brexit, but refusing to be crystal clear about what the answer is. And indeed, you know, that kind of tightrope reminds me of what Jeremy Corbyn tried to do for quite a while and didn't really get away with it. And then, of course, you've got the Labour Party's perspective on this, which is that Keir Starmer may not want to speak a great deal about immigration, liberalising the system and potentially freedom of movement. But a lot of Labour Party activists at annual conference will want to speak about those things. And similarly, you know, Labour likes a plan. And if we think about our future relations with our continent, it just strikes me as very, very difficult to not really get too prescriptive about what happens next. I agree with all of that. And I mean, 
what I'm, I'm not for a moment suggesting that Keir Starmer's task is an easy one. What I do think, however, though, is if we're talking a context of at best sclerotic growth approaching the next election, where people feel the promises made to them have not been delivered on, it will be easier for him to get his message across in a vague way. That is to say, the Conservatives have brought you a lack of progress, a lack of growth, a lack of the investment they promised you. Amongst many reasons were A, their bad handling of the pandemic, B, the fact that they negotiated Brexit badly. I think in the right context, that could be quite uh, an appealing message. Whether it's appealing enough to get uh, the Labour Party a majority at the next election, I very, very much doubt. But uh, you're absolutely right. There are that, that, that course is fraught with dangers, partly because there are, as you say, going to be Labour members and perhaps Labour MPs who want to talk in more detail about things like freedom of movement or relations with the single market. Partly, too, because the Prime Minister's line of attack will be, so what would you suggest we do differently? I think it's going to be very hard uh, for Keir Starmer. At the moment, he's helped by uh, lockdown politics. So there is very little visibility for opposition uh, politicians. So it's essentially is the front man uh, of the Labour Party. He can pretty much direct chair the waves uh, of the Labour Party. It will be far more difficult when politics will go back to some normality. At the moment, he also has the excuse of, well, he's still settling in into the job of being leader of the opposition is re-establishing the credentials of the party as a competent party and so on. So at the moment, there is a lot of patience uh, and tolerance for that kind of approach. But I would say that in a year, 18 months' time, impatience will grow and different factions of the party will want clarity on a variety of issues from freedom of movement or even this crucial question of what kind of recognition you give to the EU ambassador in the United Kingdom. It's very interesting that he has chosen to be silent about this matter. No journalist has asked him, so does he support the, the, the government's position of not giving full recognition to the EU mission in the United Kingdom? Uh, it will be quite interesting to see what would be his response because it will be telling, does he recognize the EU as a, a unique institution, almost like a nation state, or uh, does he side with the government? At the moment, he has all of these factors uh, on his side, but within the next 12 months, this uh, ambiguity uh, will no longer be constructive. He will need to start to kind of to flesh out his positions. Yes. And I think the final thing on Labour, before we move on, I mean, you mentioned, Eunice, um, Ed Miliband's contribution about workers' rights and the fact that you didn't detect him talking about Brexit during that contribution. And you know, I think that obviously speaks to this wider strategy, which I think Keir Starmer has also tried to push, which is, you know, to get back to the question we're pondering in this podcast, you know, it's done. There's a sort of tone that comes from Keir Starmer that there isn't a great deal of appetite to reopen the relationship uh, with the EU because obviously it's been negotiated over such a long time and the whole thing has been quite torturous. And you almost get the the, the sense that that, that, it, that it's not possible. And hence with workers' rights, it's considered to be a domestic policy issue, almost like it's got nothing to do with the European Union and our past relationship. To what extent over the next few years do you think, particularly from an EU perspective, that message will be borne out? Do you think the European Union is similarly very keen to just not talk about this anymore? Or do you think there will be voices from other member states that express an interest in a potentially new government 
reopening the relationship? There are several different things there. I mean, just on the domestic front, it's worth stressing that it's wholly conceivable that you'd have a sort of Brenda from Bristol reaction to any notion that we're going to renegotiate Brexit. People just wanted this out of the way. And the idea that Keir Starmer would approach the next election saying, have I got a present for you lot? There is just that weariness. And, and on the EU side, I'd say a couple of things. Firstly, many member states had moved on from Brexit long before the deal was done. In fact, I'd argue that one of the reasons why it became so hairy in December was so many heads of state and government had taken their eyes off the ball. They were you know, focused on COVID and other matters and really sort of had to be reminded about what they were negotiating and what was at stake. So I think you know, there's no question that within the European Union, member states have moved on from this. The one area where I wonder whether there isn't going to be some conversation about whether or not we couldn't be doing things better with the British's foreign and security policy. And a lot there will hinge, I think, on events. You know, if in the unlikely event that the world is quiet and stable, there won't be quite so much pressure. But in a world that becomes very unstable, where there are international crises and where there is no formal institutionalised relationship between the UK and the EU, I can easily imagine there being conversations about how do we start to build those links again? How do we bring the British back into the fold? That might be an EU initiative. It might be within the context of President Macron's talk of uh, European Security Council. But I think that is the one area where I can foresee there being a real conversation. Because economically, let's bear in mind, uh, yes, there'll be economic damage. It'll be relatively short-lived because on the EU side, traders have 26 other markets to look at and try and trade with and try and source goods from. And so I suspect that adaptation on their side will be relatively quick, with the exception of the Republic of Ireland, where I think the economic impacts will be longer lasting. I agree. I think that, that area of international cooperation on uh, defence might be an area that Starmer will have an interest to explore. There is a democratic president in, in the White House who has very strong links uh, with Europe, in particular with the Republic of Ireland. And in his speech to the Fabian Society, Starmer uh, made that quite stale suggestion of um, uh, Britain being a bridge between Europe uh, and United States. I don't know exactly how he plans to do that with the United Kingdom not being a member of the European Union, but he can kind of rejig or rework this idea with, you know, looking at new new challenges uh, and trying to work out a kind of a, a good working relationship with the Biden administration to reclaim a new space in, in a form of dialogue uh, with Europe. So th this could be his proposal, a new dialogue, a new uh, engagement with Europe in terms of a strategic role in the world as a defender of uh, human rights, uh, the Green New Deal, etc., etc. If there is a political party that certainly hasn't shown the sort of caution that Labour has, and indeed on Brexit Day was quite open with the regrets that the decision has entailed, is the Scottish National Party and Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister. I mean, it's very clear where the SNP are coming from on all of this. Where do you think the SNP are going to go with their position on Brexit over the next couple of years? And, and, and what options do they have in terms of engaging that part of British politics and European politics with a referendum on independence? The SNP have essentially arrived at their final position on Brexit, which is this is what a Tory government in Westminster has done to us against our will. That's all they need, really. And they will leverage that, as they have been leveraging it since the referendum, with some success. I mean, what we've seen, 20-odd 
polls in a row now giving us a majority for independence. Uh, if you dig down into that polling, what you see very clearly is that it is Remain voters who previously opposed independence, who have made that shift, who have gone to supporting independence because of their experience and their feelings about Brexit. So Brexit has achieved what Nicholas Sturgeon wanted it to achieve, in a sense, which is one of the reasons why she was keen to back the election uh, at the end of last year, as well as, of course, trying to get it out of the way before the salmon trial took place. Now, I think, in a sense, she confronts the Brexit problems, because over and above the issue as to whether or not she can get Boris Johnson to agree to a referendum, the party then has to come up with lines to deal with the practical issues that Brexit uh, poses for the party. Because whilst Brexit increases, if you like, the emotional case for Scottish independence among some Scottish voters, it makes the practical case more problematic. Firstly, in terms of joining the European Union, would you have to join the euro and things like that? But secondly, and I think more importantly, in terms of the challenge of the border, because with the kind of Brexit that we have, which is a pretty hard Brexit, if Scotland were to leave the United Kingdom and join the European Union, you'd have to be talking about a border between Scotland and England in precisely the same way as we've been discussing potential borders between GB and Northern Ireland. I mean, I saw the First Minister give an intervention during the referendum campaign. And obviously, one of the questions that I'm sure she's very used to getting is, well, you know, you you seem very, very enthusiastic to be a member of the European Union and pooling sovereignty in a number of areas. But obviously, the main principle of your politics is to end an existing union and to no longer pull sovereignty with other countries in the United Kingdom. Do you think that kind of discussion is, in a sense, even bigger now? Because we are seeing just how hard and the initial consequences of doing just that. The SNP will fa- faces other other big challenges. So not only now the the, the teething problems of Brexit that are not uh, so uh, teething, so the 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 losses of the the Scottish uh, fishing uh, industry, but there is also this uh, very important loss, which is the loss to EU structural funds, which was a way and enabled the Scottish government to uh, invest in infrastructure to tackle poverty. Uh, and so on. And uh, it is not clear yet whether the British government is going to totally replace the, the funds that used to come from the European Union. But more importantly, they even if they are going to be re- replaced by the shared prosperity fund, who is going to manage those funds? Who is going to decide in, uh, in what projects, in which projects will the funds be uh, invested in? So there is uh, all these areas of, of control, which in one hand gives uh, Sturgeon the arguments for independence, in favor of independence. But on the other hand, it gives us also, she lost control a little bit of policymaking in Scotland. So far, she's been quite the Teflon first minister. All the problems that emerge in Scotland, the SNP has been immune to losses of popularity. They are not seen as responsible for the problems. But is this sustainable after such a long period in, uh, in office? Uh, I think it's still unclear and probably will have a clear idea following the May elections uh, to the Scottish Parliament. You mentioned the, the sort of the, the potential trade-off between sort of economics and control, that it was the, the polling that we saw in the Sunday Times recently was quite interesting, is that it gave us a majority for independence and a very, very high number of people who acknowledged that independence might be economically damaging. And here again, you know, one of the interesting things of the last few years is the degree to which lessons you've learned from one referendum can be usefully applied to the next referendum. And uh, we 
some interesting thoughts here about the degree to which just doing project fear would work. I mean, one of the one of the interesting things of, of UK politics over the last sort of five or six years has been the way that David Cameron modelled the uh, Remain campaign on the campaign they'd run in the Scottish referendum. And that was a campaign that had hemorrhaged support to the other side. I mean, there had been a no vote in the Scottish referendum, but the, the state of public opinion at the end of the campaign was very, very different to the state of public opinion at the start of the campaign. So it always it always struck me as slightly odd that that was seen as, as, as an example of a successful campaign. The other big difference, of course, was that, and, and I know David Cameron's pollsters are quite dismissive of this now, is that you know when that campaign was starting to look a little bit worrying for Tories and and Labour and the the rest of the campaign, they did the vow. You know there was a very big proactive push at you know we've been listening. Here's a new offer, and they didn't feel able to do that in the EU referendum campaign. They felt that they'd you know they'd achieved the change that they were going to get. There wasn't much more they could promise people, and I've always thought that was a quite a significant difference ultimately between the the two campaigns is it seems that there was very much a recognition that the campaign was going the wrong way and they had to react. Whereas with the EU referendum campaign, they almost chose not to react, but to just to keep going and hope for the best. But in a sense, the reaction came first in the EU referendum campaign. That was the problem, was it? Because the reaction was the renegotiation. Uh, that was, in a sense, the equivalent of the vow. This is this is what we're delivering to make things better. And actually, that landed, I mean, to say it landed badly is... is something of an understatement but of course that was something that they they i mean they delivered more i think than than they thought or certainly than they said but the decision was taken very very quickly that weekend that the deal would play no part in the subsequent uh, referendum campaign boris johnson has or certainly some of the briefings in the media seem to suggest that boris johnson is going to give the union more attention is boris johnson the politician to save the union? Well, so far he has shown very little interest in the union and his instincts are very centralizing. And I think the mood in the nations or regions of the United Kingdom, so the devolved areas of the United Kingdom, is to actually to have more uh, devolution. And so going back to the the point about the the, the independence referendum in 2014, in the end, the unionist uh, cause won because the unionist parties promised more devolution to voters. It's not clear whether the Prime Minister Boris Johnson is ready to give more powers to the Scottish Parliament, because this could be something that Scottish voters might be a bit fearful about what's going to happen to an independent Scotland, what's going to happen to their pockets, their uh, living standards and so on. Will, Will Boris Johnson be ready to devolve more power to the Scottish Parliament, to the Welsh Assembly? And crucially, what is he planning to do about uh, England? So far, the tendencies, his style of government has been one of centralizing more power uh, in Whitehall, not even in Westminster. It is in Whitehall. So unless he's ready to review uh, his centralizing instincts, I think he's going to, to, to struggle a, a little bit uh, with, this, uh, with this issue. Let's imagine that there is a leader's debate at the next general election, and we have a Conservative Prime Minister, a leader of the Labour Party, and the First Minister at a slightly larger leaders' debate. It's an hour long. If you had to put a bet on how many minutes of that hour would be talking about the relationship with the European Union, what would you say? I think there will be very few minutes because uh, 
neither Boris Johnson or whoever will replace him, uh, nor Keir Starmer, have any interest in talking about Europe for the next five years. The, this is an issue that it's massively problematic for both of them, because if Keir Starmer, for instance, uh, see, will be keen to review the relationship with the EU in a way that Britain will get closer, well, they'll be, you'll have to offer answers on controversial issues like freedom of movement and immigration. And he doesn't want to go there because uh, that might be a turnoff for the so-called red wall voters. Boris Johnson, on the other hand, well, uh, some of the gains that the Conservative government reclaimed from Brexit was around sovereignty and the, the, the ability to diverge from the European Union. And one area where they want to diverge is labor rights and employment legislation. But this might contradict their proposals also to bringing greater prosperity and a leveling up uh, agenda. So neither of them are really interested in having an in-depth discussion about that future relationship. I think it will be a matter of the the moderator of the debate uh, really insisting on obtaining answers from both of them. I think, to be honest, 10 or 15 minutes will be spent talking about or around the European Union simply because the Prime Minister, I suspect, will be very, very keen to to attribute anything he sees as an achievement to his decision to leave the European Union. So I would guess he would say, we've built three ports because we're out of the European Union. We've managed to pay more attention to left behind communities in whatever way they choose to do so because of our decision to leave the European Union. We've signed all these trade deals and we're trading more with Japan now than we were all before because of Brexit. I think he will be very, very keen to stress what he will say are, and I say that advisedly because I'm not sure any of these really are necessarily advantages or advantages that come from Brexit, but I think he will be very keen to portray positive things as stemming directly from him leading us out of the European Union. It does feel to me that in terms of whether or not Brexit is done in in real economic, social, you know, business regulations and all the rest of it terms clearly isn't, because people are, are going to be learning, dealing with the consequences and, 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 and working out exactly what all of this now means. Absolutely. I don't think the Prime Minister is going to mention all of that. He won't no. be talking about process. He'll be talking about outcomes. And then politically, we have lots of different interests at play here. A Prime Minister who may well want to talk it up as an achievement, a First Minister who may well want to describe it as a complete disaster and integral to the need to have a further independence referendum, and then the leader of the Labour Party who's feeling a bit squeezed, which does feel like a movie we may have seen before. Indeed. Indeed. Okay, well, on that note, I think we should draw things to a close. Thank you very much to our two excellent guests, Professor Eunice Goish and Professor Anand Menon. And uh, thank you to all of you for listening. Please do subscribe to our podcast for future episodes. You can find the Marlend Institute on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you sign up to the mailing list on our website, you'll always hear first about our future events. But that's all for today. Thank you for listening.